Welcome back to Blazing Business Trails, a place where great minds and industry experts discuss the challenges and issues for leaders in the business services arena. And we share insights across all of the industries that make up business services. This is part two of our chat with Richard Metcalf and Matthew Jones. Richard Metcalf is Senior Regional Vice President Strategic Accounts at Salesforce and Matthew Jones joins us from the Cambridge Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. Part one was amazing, conversation around AI. What have we got to hear in part two? So we're going to touch on many areas. Digital transformation on the technology side. We've got war and talent apprenticeships that we kind of cover. Disrupting and uh, competing as clients as well. And also looking at the market dynamics. Can't wait to hear what these guys are going to say. So welcome, Richard, and to Matthew. Thanks, Sarah. Great to see you, Richard, and Cully too. Thank you for having me. Yeah, brilliant to be back, Matthew. Thank you so much for spending time with us again. So, Richard, we have a mentee programme with Avado Fast Futures, and I know that you've been involved with that. Uh, what were your experiences uh, with with the talent that came through? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. And yeah, I, I encourage uh, listeners to this podcast to, to search up Avado Fast Futures as soon as you've listened to this, first of all, obviously. Um, it's a it's a wonderful organisation that's helping um, undergraduates and, and recent graduates um, gain gain skills to enter the workplace. And I think particularly now, um, you know, having had so much disruption, <laughs> back to that word, in the, over the last eighteen months, two years, um, there's a lot of young people out there who who haven't had the experiences that they need in order to 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 nece- not necessarily thrive in the workplace, but actually necessarily have the confidence to feel that they can thrive in the workplace. So Avado is is helping these um, these undergraduates and, and recent graduates um, gain gain some new skills. And I've had the pleasure of, of mentoring um, a couple of um, a couple of students um, through that. Uh, just just meant some some listening, some coaching, some soft interview skills. Uh, I've got another a, another cohort to, to start in a few weeks' time. And as I say, I think my, my, my experience is that there are absolutely brilliant, brilliant students out there who have grasped this opportunity um, by, by, the, by the scruff of its neck and, and really are thinking about how they can enter the workplace and really investing in themselves through it. But because they they've not managed to get into the workplace necessarily in the way that that, that I did and, and and others will have done, they're missing out on some some skills. So there's an opportunity for there's an opportunity for us to to help them kind of understand a little bit about what is being looked for in in the workplace. But actually, it's brilliant the other way around, and brilliant hearing from them about their experiences and what's important to them and what's new to them and some of the things that they're doing. You know, it helps helps keep me a little bit younger as well. And um, yeah, as, as I say, it's it's a great it's a great scheme. Encourage um, encourage others to to sign up to it and and work with these these young people through in coming through into the organisation both to, to help them learn, to help bring them into the workplace, but also to understand how they're thinking about disruption, how they're thinking about new things and, and how we can take advantage of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done exactly the same. I think it's a great programme and uh, very bright minds as well. And certainly we learn from each other. So do you think, um, Matthew, do you think there we should be looking at new apprenticeship models um, to, to, to try and disrupt going forward as well? Well, thanks, Sarah. And, you know, before I answer that, just let me underscore what mm. Richard said as well. I mean, I, I think it's a fantastically important uh, 
input that we as more senior individuals um, can give to those coming through. I know that from my professional experience. I know that from my own personal experience with two children who are you know, early entrants to the workplace, uh, new entrants to the workplace uh, in recent times and seen all the challenges that they've been going through uh, in the current situation. So you know, I regard it as a hugely important issue and a huge responsibility for all of us that have had the benefit of that uh, different experience. And taking it to pro professional services firms, you know, they continue to be built on what is essentially an apprenticeship model, as we know, you know, and what is that? That, that really is um, the combined processes of learning by development or in effect by osmosis, being amongst people, um, and also the steady accrual of those sedimentary layers of experience. And, you know, these ideas have to date been strongly dependent on physical proximity, uh, particularly in the areas of client handling, emotional intelligence, learning from example, and I suppose cognitive development more generally. And so, you know, th there's been a great impact on all this from re remote working, as has been, I think, well documented. And it, if it didn't stop those pressures in their tracks, then it at least significantly disrupted them. Um, especially when you also take account of the, the hollowing out of experience that, that comes from technology increasingly taking away some of those tasks that were once, you know, the preserve of, of junior people. So, you know, what, what, what do we need to think about going forward um, if we want to continue to apply that model, that apprenticeship model, um, but, it, you know, adapting it appropriately? I, I think partly it, this ends up um, being dependent on where the overall pattern of remote working um, settles. Um, you know, perhaps that's going to be less hybrid than was predicted at, at the height of lockdown. I do think the jury is still very much out on all of this. Um, but, you know, there will be eventually uh, some emergent model that most people follow, I, I imagine. That's the way these things normally go. Um, but even, you know, even the nature of the model itself isn't, isn't um, the only issue here. You know, you can also see a situation in which certain cohorts of the working population have different perspectives and preferences as to where the optimal balance lies between remote working and co-location. So, you know, th th then there will definitely be continuing implications for on-the-job learning. Um, It'll take some time to work these things out, but I, but I think you know, if we're to adapt the model, then part of the solution um, lies in the interaction of I don't know at least three areas. But firstly, you know, this hybrid pattern of work that's emerging has to be actively designed with the apprentice issue in mind, rather than be one that just assumes that the issue will, will somehow solve itself over time. I think, secondly, we're all going to have to see great awareness on the part of leaders generally, you know, both the importance of um, and the challenges facing their tutoring and mentoring responsibilities in this changed work environment and hand in hand with, I suppose, increased commitment to ensuring that those crucial developmental responsibilities are sufficiently prioritised relative to the many other calls on the time that, of course, they have, especially when taking account the, the limitations of remote interaction. And lastly, um, and again, perhaps I'm wearing an optimist hat too much here, but, you know, hopefully there'll be technolo te technological solutions that the more successfully replicate the, you know, the co-locational experience um, when we are perhaps remote, you know, in particular, those more osmotic experiences that I mentioned just now. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the opportunities found in the room to observe and absorb, to listen and learn could somehow be replicated remotely? So that's the sort of shift that I, I envisage. Is technology going to really be the inhibitor here for that co-location working? I mean, if the technology isn't 
isn't fit for purpose, are we really are our apprentices and you know future intakes of new employees really going to get the experience that they need to be able to learn on the job? That is the challenge. That is the challenge. And um, we'll all be poorer, professionals and clients alike, if we don't get that bit right. Because at the end of the day, what we're producing in this process is, um, you know, an accumulation of experience um, and judgment, which, which, you know, is able to deliver high level uh, advice and guidance to clients. That's what we're trying to get to. And you only get to that through a long-term process of development, which is heavily dependent on working amongst, pe- amongst people who are more senior and more experienced and can share that and pass it on. Let's um, pivot the conversation, if we can, Rich, to to talking about clients. We've talked, to, we've talked a lot about disruption and, and the way business is approaching disruption, but can it be outside in so or inside out? Can clients drive the way an organisation um, transforms itself and can they force that change? Kelly, the answer is yes, of course. And, um, you know, we, we, we've been talking about the big um, virus-led disruption um, that, that's happened over the last uh, 18 months or so. But let's face it, it is client need, client demand, a client change, which is absolutely at the forefront of everything that any organisation is looking to do, whether that's in professional services firms or, or frankly, any other industry. Uh, I think it was the founder of uh, Walmart uh, who said that that there is one person who who can be fired, be sacked by absolutely uh, anybody, and that is the CEO, and, and, and can be sacked by the customer. And I think if you kind of kind of kind of extrapolate that out to to where disruption happens as well, then it is it's it's changes in in the marketplace, it's changes in customer need, in client need that is absolutely at the forefront of 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 any organisation, the way that they service their market, and actually also in the uh, you know in the in, in the opportunity for entrepreneurs to see new opportunity and come in and be disruptors um you know barriers to entry are much lower than they they perhaps have been previously and that allows people with seeing new opportunity gives them the opportunity to go and and make change and and uh, take on take on the, the the large incumbents and we all have to be absolutely um, cognizant of that and and responding to it and be thinking about how how we can re- can, can pr- predict it and, and get ahead of the curve. I would certainly very much agree with all of that. And I, I, I suppose I draw a distinction um, between uh, disruption from the client community that comes from changes in their needs, changes in the way they wish to be served, um, direct things like that, which, which are you know, kind of re-specifying of expectations, if you like, some of which is, is fully articulated, some of it is, is just more discerned by the service provider, I suppose, is that. And then more um, more in the nature of indirect disruption, I suppose. So things like changes in, in pricing uh, and, and and business models. So, you know, the repatriation of, repatriation of price risk back to the service provider from the client because the client isn't prepared to take open-ended pricing risk in the way services are provided, for example. Or, you know, what's sometimes turned the even more for even less agenda where, you know, there's a, 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 an ever increasing, you know, expectation about uh, 
notching up the value that is delivered for a given price point, etc. So there are all sorts of indirect changes as well, because they, they then filter through into firms in terms of operational and cultural changes regarding delivery, organisation, uh, approach to um, producing work, etc., uh, which are all quite fundamental. So I, I think clients, as a, as a disruptor, whether they see themselves as that or not, um, it, it is it is very much the case that they do, and and rightly so because you know firms do and should have a very client centric view of what they do. And with that in mind, then Matthew, are we seeing are we going to see clients walk away? Are we going to see people walk away from having their services provided by company A to company B because they get a better experience? Are they prepared to make that take that risk? I, I think there will always be clients who are prepared to um, make choices based on you know quality of service and experience, and and again, rightly so. I, I think, um, I think historically. Uh, relationships have been a lot more institutionalized, a lot more durable because of that. And probably, you know, one of the emerging trends is certainly not the disappearance of the institutional relationship, but perhaps a, de- a decline in some areas as clients become uh, better able to make decisions about procuring particular elements of their requirements from different sources rather than from a single source or or look at how they break up the work that they need done into different sorts of parcels or processes. You know, that kind of buying is increasingly undermining of the onset, of the idea of a single monolithic institutional relationship. So for sure, clients have always been able to shop around and, and will continue to do so. But I, th- I think that the drivers behind that might, might change. So Matthew, in, in, in your view, does service convergence and increasing horizontality create a form of disruption? I think it does, Richard. Um, you know, the, the disruption in, in a number of senses, one of which, you know, is it moving towards the end of the vertical um, through increasing adjacencies or broadening at, at, the, at the horizontal? Um, you know, difficult to um, generalise here. No one size fits all. You, you have to look at the particular target market and the particular operating model and so on. But but you can see how that is occurring. And And, you know, might we get to a position whereby there is a sort of post-silo era for professional expertise. In other words, um, you know, the, the adjacencies that I refer to that, that make it more horizontal may not just be in, uh, you know, new and additional substantive, substantive uh, advisory domains, but they all may also be more process-oriented or delivery-oriented areas of expertise um, as those, you know, come to the fore alongside core professional expertise. So you can see that kind of broadening going on, um, and you know it's going to be interesting to see where, where that where that plays out. But it's it's, it's dangerous to generalise, I think. Um, and also there will be some clients who, who you know, still have um, you know a, a, a wish to um, break up their purchasing, their, their buying of services, um, so that they're not reliant on on single providers. Even if there is that broadening, that that sort of horizontalization uh, that, that we just discussed. So it's going to be a mixed do you see picture, that kind of just being a pendulum that kind of swings backwards and forwards as as that convergence happens, as that horizontality occurs, as that that kind of almost leaves a, a vacuum to some extent for another level of specialism to come in? Does that, does that kind of yeah. that trend? Yeah, no, I, 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 I can see what you mean. I can see what you mean. Um, I mean, I, I think, is it a pendulum? I, pendulum, of course, implies that we'll swing back to how it was or near to how it was at some point. And I, and I think perhaps 
um, we need a different analogy. I can't think immediately what that would be, but you know, it's the uh, the 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 reason I'm saying that is is that I, you know what's what's driving that broadening of the service array. Fundamentally, it's a response to client need, and what it, you know the, what client need is 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 something that isn't single domain expertise. It, it, it's a broader mix of uh, business problems that require more complex solutions and also you know management of the delivery of services um an understanding of how all of these pieces fit together with the the, with the the client's broader agenda in terms of you know it's, it's its own business transformation the need for it to have risk in context and manage risk in t- context uh, the need for it to apply technology intelligently whatever it is you know so i think those needs aren't going to go away things are only getting more complex and and and, and therefore it's hard to see how that pendulum swing goes right back. Um, you know, it's difficult to predict, but you can see why that's a sustainable change. Matthew, we often talk, uh, or we, we hear when we talk to customers, you know, the, the concept of a single throat to choke when you you've got a service delivery discussion going on. If you're introducing multiple organisations into that service delivery, then you're introducing risk and competitiveness. Do you have a view on that? No, I think there is a real issue about about how all this fits together because you know if you do break down supply in this way amongst multiple um, suppliers, uh, then then you know it, it immediately raises the question: Well, who's tying all that back together again? You know, how do you you know where is the where where is the seamlessness at the point of delivery? Um, that either gets delivered via a, a level of collaboration between service providers, which you know is not necessarily easy to achieve, or it gets um, dealt with by the client's management of those services which again you know has some challenges attached to it in terms of bandwidth in terms of um interface risk you name it so so it, it you know it, it is complex the, the more you um the, the more diffuse the suppliers are in, in in any given situation that is itself a complex business problem that together people are trying to to solve market dynamics um you touched on it earlier. Would you say it is one of the biggest disruptors? I, I think it's 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 up there. It's not, um, you know. I, you know, I, th- I think we're all we spent a large amount of this conversation rightly focusing on the impact of technology um, in the area of disruption, and you know, it wouldn't be really credible to 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 not have that very high on the list. But you know, there are clearly other things out there too in terms of market dynamics. So, you know, if we go back to COVID uh, and its impacts. Um, you know, just one example, you know, what is that telling us about, about um, how focused people are on the place of delivery or the place in which they work? You know, the word here is, you know, geo-agnosticism, you know, to what extent are people indifferent as to the location of service delivery now that we're all used to dealing with each other virtually? And we've seen that that works. And that leads you on to questions which are equally disruptive, like if, if we are in a geo-agnostic, geo-agnostic world, what does that mean for um, professional services firms uh, and their, you know, long-standing uh, attachment to a, a largely bricks and mortar concept of presence and international presence? You know, that that raises some questions about what that actually means in terms of the investment uh, and management of, of, of all of that, uh, which I think is probably going to have to play out. I think because we're moving less. Uh, um, towards uh, a virtual world uh, in terms of interaction and, and more to a sort of hybrid world where there looks like at some point will be much more significant amounts of in-person contact than perhaps was seen at the peak of 
all of the challenges of the last 18 months, maybe this issue subsides a little bit. But nonetheless, you know, we've all learnt that we can operate in a virtual way quite effectively. So that will have some sort of lasting impact and you know, will probably fuel a degree of geoagnosticism in certain areas. Richard, do you think another disruption is the acceptance of disruption and constant change by the clients? Um, I don't think there hasn't ever been a point where we haven't had acceptance of disruption and the need to to, to accept it. Um, I'm looking down at my my bookshelf here at the, the 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 short book that I read many years ago, "Who Moved My Cheese" by Spencer Johnson, and yeah, I mean, change change is ever constant, and um, it kind of comes back to some things that we we're saying right at the right at the top of the call that. Um, you know, ch- changes, changes there. You, you, clients have to accept it. Businesses, professional services firms have to accept it. They have to respond to it. They have to adapt it. In some cases, they can inject it, um, but it it absolutely is there. It's and 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 drives drives the innovation that we were talking about um, earlier on. And uh, you know, I could just come back to one of the one of the other phrases in 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 that book that I just referenced. You know, the, one of the watchwords is two watchwords: enjoy it, and um, you know, accept it, enjoy it, take take on the, the, the disruption which is out there, and um, and and you know, and, and prosper from it as well. And and actually, not just prosper personally, but actually find a way to to make the world a better place as well. At the same time, we can we can we can do both of those things at the same time. Matthew, can you see any new operating models emerging from all this? Um, almost certainly, Sarah. I mean, you know, I, I think you you need to start here by by looking at the offering of a particular practice area in whatever sector you're in. You know, rather than necessarily adjust the firm or, or enterprise level. I mean, for example, are you are you focused on the kind of premium advisory end of the market? You know, complex and novel technical issues, high value stakes, um, great commercial significance. You know, those sorts of areas. Um, or are you at the other end of the spectrum? more of a, a volume play, um, high volume, more process-oriented, routine, repetitive tasks, that sort of thing. You know, There's no wrong or right place to be, by the way. The only issue is, is you know, what's the right model to make that really effective and indeed run it profitably. And so, so you know, I think um, one of the issues here is, is, is there's a continuum. Um, you know, there are many other permutations or, if you like, varietals along the length of this, of this spectrum. Um, I've only mentioned you know two of the extremes, but but you can already see just from those two examples that you know very different operational considerations might apply from the use of technology, process optimization, leverage, you know the number of people deployed and their relative seniority, um, the resourcing mix, and of course the pricing model. So you know the reality is that in any single firm, in my experience, a number of different different, different um, operating models might exist depending on you know where where it specialises. And, you know, sometimes these differences aren't always that well recognised. Um, and, you know, if there is a, an unsuitability of an operating model, it's usually in the form of some sort of lag between, on the one hand, you know, the, the current operational reality and the dynamics of the market being served. And on the other hand, legacy systems, operating practices and perhaps cultural behaviours that, that no longer align with that new reality. And it's that lag that leads to inefficiencies. It can lead to reduced profitability and indeed delivery challenges. So models that don't flex enough 
to keep up with reality are, are where the problems are. So I think there's a, an existing reality around operating models and how they're, 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 they are applied, quite apart from you know all of the disruptive issues that that we've been talking about. If I, if I had to you know to, to pick out a few things looking forward that that um, you know might be interesting developments in terms of operating models again for the professional services sector well you know let's start with something like a subscription model uh, for services something that's in place of a conventional fee for services based model in a way that feels like a logical extension of where we are for some it obviously imports an awful lot of risk um, if not done well but you can see why that might be a development um, you know, your business model then becomes perhaps more about data exploitation than it is about um, advisory uh, you know, you have to manage fee risk through a mixture of data-led pricing accuracy, uh, volume, cross-subsidy, uh, and so on and so forth. You know, the, 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 there are ways in which you could see that model applying. Um, or you might see something, uh, if I look at it from a different angle, um, splitting out, you know, core operational infrastructure from firms, um, within firms, from, from their more client-facing aspects. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite an inefficient use of an in individual firm's balance sheet to invest so heavily in all this technology we've been talking about. Wouldn't it be more efficient for that to be dealt with by an infrastructure provider that could specialise in these areas, invest in the future and so on, and keep it up to date, and to, as it were, lease that to firms um, in an appropriate way. You know, you could see models like that emerging potentially at some point. And, you know, I, I think um, the idea of a truly distributed firm, there are firms out there that would claim to be that, you know, perhaps we'll see a bit more of that come through uh, now that we've all you know, seen that this, this virtual world works. But against that, we're all been talking about the need to get back together again as well. So perhaps there's a break on that um, uh, in, in terms of an ultimate direction of travel. So, you know, a number of ideas like that, perhaps I'd finish with, with you know, something that's a bit more far, farther down the, 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 tr the track, uh, further down the track, um, perhaps, uh, and may be entirely conceptual rather than something that's, that's approaching reality. And that's, uh, you know, to sort of see professional services become more, more like a platformized model, um, you know, something that, is, you know, focuses on investing in the network, creating a network which has benefits through application and value creation, um, something that's less dependent on, selling services um, for, for fees you could see that as being a feature of the professional services world at some point but i think that's a long way off from where we are now matthew can, can i can i just build on that slightly um you, you, you know talking about operating models and how operating models um could develop and evolve over time what do you think needs to happen culturally as well you mentioned the word culture i mean we've gone through so much disruption at such speed over this these last few months, what, what happened needs to happen at a cultural and a values-led um, perspective in, in in firms as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Richard, because I, I, I think for, there's probably a bit of disruption fatigue going on. To be honest, um, <laughs> you know, get, add it all up in terms of what everyone's been through in, in the last couple of years. But but you know, moving forward in terms of an answer to your question, um, it really. Um, it sort of underscores the need, doesn't it, for, for people to be much more content with the idea of perpetual change, um, uh, you know, uh, much more of a, a change-embracing attitude at the individual level and the organisational level. That's easier said than done. Um, you know, people have a lot to fear from change, as we know, but actually, you know, perhaps the winners are going to be those cultures that, that support, you know, real appetite and engagement with the possibilities of change rather than those that constantly, you know, shy away from it. So I, I think that, and that, that, you know, so there's a cultural piece there. There's also a leadership responsibility, which is how, how do you, 
how do you inculcate you know within the, the the culture of the business that kind of mindset universally so that so that you know everyone is marching to the same uh, beat on on that point that's quite a challenge i think what a great episode sarah and um i just want to say thank you richard metcalf and thank you matthew jones thank you for joining me and sarah this is blazing listeners trails join us next time for our business services podcast brought to you by salesforce